Hello, and welcome to episode 106 of Killer Hangover. My name is Beth. And I'm Bettina. And this week we will be covering true crime and paranormal stories and a cocktail from Florida again. (laughs) Florida again. We can't seem to get out of Florida. We're back. (laughs) We're having really crappy weather here. Maybe that's why we're like, oh, Florida. Oh, Florida. I'm going to dream of Florida as I'm drinking my drink, too, let me tell you. Well, what are you drinking, Mom? Unfortunately, I will not be partaking with you because we are doing this virtually. But what are you drinking? What a great segue. Good job. Well, think of sunny Florida. Think of sitting at the pool and having a nice cold daiquiri or pina colada or, you know, that kind of drink, right? A tropical beverage. Gotcha. Yes, a tropical beverage, but it is cold here, and I didn't want to make a beverage with a lot of ice in it. (laughs) Realistically, it's cold. So I found the recipe for a classic daiquiri. Oh. And? Okay. What's a classic daiquiri? It only has four things in it. It has two ounces of white rum, three-fourths ounce of fresh lime juice. I happen to have lime, so that worked out. And three-fourths ounce of simple syrup. Okay. Ice and garnish. (laughs) Whatever. Um, (laughs) You combine the three ingredients in a shaker. Shake it for 30 seconds or until well chilled. My hand was, my hand hurt. It was that chilled. Oh, God. Oh, God. And strain into a champagne glass or a martini glass. And I happen to have a martini glass. Oh. So... Look how pretty that looks. I know, right? Yes. (laughs) So shake it until your arthritis hurts. Is that what you're saying? Shake it till your hand hurts (laughs) because it's so cold. (laughs) I got the recipe from my recipes. And of course, we'll be listing that on our sources. But easy peasy. Actually, you know what? I was just looking at this. I could just add some mint and a bit of club soda. And I'd have a mojito. (laughs) Been there, did that last one of the times we were in Florida. That's right. I just took away the the mint and the club soda and I have a daiquiri. (laughs) Sorry, I thought that was really funny because I just realized it. All right. Well, cheers. (laughs) Okay. She's having a fun time over there drinking her classic daiquiri all on her lonesome. Actually, it's really super good because the rum isn't too strong because the lime Mm -hmm. cuts it down and I use fresh lime. So I think that really makes a difference. I'm telling you, when we use those acidic fruits in there, it really cuts down on like the alcohol taste. And I'm sure there is way more professional verbiage I could have used in that (laughs) sentence, but I am no bartender. I I wouldn't have understood you. So it's fine. (laughs) Those limes make it not taste so alcohol like. Alcoholy. Yeah. There you go. Yep. Very good. Okay, mom, will you enjoy that cocktail? I have quite the story for you. All right. I am going to introduce you to a lovely soul, Lauren DeMolo. This is a missing persons case, a missing and endangered persons case. It's not cold, it's still an active investigation. So, those in the Florida area, Or heck, any listeners, please keep that in mind. 
What does missing and endangered person, what does that mean? So she is a missing persons and it's listed as endangered when they disappear without any of their worldly possessions. Oh, okay. Meaning cell phone, an ID, wallet, their keys, a car, any of, you know, money, anything like that. Any of their worldly possessions. So it doesn't necessarily mean medication. No. They're gone without their medication. It just means, okay, possessions. Thank you for the clarification. Yes. From my sources, at least, that's what it, that's what bumped it up to endangered. Okay. Especially this day and age, I would assume it's very rare for somebody to disappear without their cell phone. Cell phone. Mm -hmm. And I will kind of bounce back to that in my story. I am going to begin Lauren's story on June 1st, 2020. Police were called to a local park. And notice I said 2020. So this is a very recent story. Yeah. Police were called to a local park for Freedoms Park in Cape Coral, Florida. This park plays a big part in this case in general. You're going to hear me mention it a lot. But on this day, police were called by a bystander at the park stating that there is a woman there acting erratically. Mm. That woman was Lauren. When police arrived to the park, Lauren jumped back into Bimini Bay to avoid them. So for Freedoms Park, it's a nice park from what I could see from Google Maps and what I heard on my resources and podcasts and what I read. It's smaller. There's green space. There's a nice grove of trees for a playground, some picnic benches, some picnic tables. There's a gazebo and then there's a small beach that runs along Bimini Basin. Okay. But it's it's small in general. The park is smaller. According to the Complicit podcast, and you're going to hear me reference that podcast a lot. And if you want to hear more of Lauren's story, I definitely recommend you listen to it. I believe there's nine parts to it, plus oh. extra episodes with uh, more in-depth interviews with some uh, some more family members and so forth. It's called Complicit, and it is all about Lauren's case. And I got most of my information from that podcast. Okay. So according to the Complicit podcast, Lauren had started out across the basin, had swam to Four Freedoms Park, and then started to make a scene. She was described as paranoid, talking about aliens and how someone or something was out to get her. When the police arrived, she jumped back into the water to avoid the police. They were able to get her and Baker acted her. Now, Baker Act is a Florida law which allows doctors and mental health professionals to commit a person without their permission to a mental health facility. Wow. Okay. So they're placed on a 72-hour hold. And while they're there, they get drug tested. They get like a mental and a physical checkup. And I believe there's the same law in other states, but in Florida, it's called the Baker Act. And like I said, it's normally a 72-hour hold, but Lauren was kept at the Park Royal Medical Hospital for eight days. Oh. She was tested for drugs, but no illegal substances were found. But she was kept so long because apparently while in the mental hospital, she tried to harm herself a couple times by hitting her head twice. Like the second time I know she was up on a table and fell and hit her head. She was placed on what her sister described as antipsychotic drugs, which helped her while she was in the mental hospital, and it brought her out of her psychosis. 
While in the mental hospital, they started to wean her down on the medication, and then they deemed her mentally stable enough to be released on June 8th. With medication? They did prescribe her a lower dosage of the antipsychotic drugs. Okay. Her family was in shock over this situation. I mean, hearing voices, aliens, this was not their Lauren. Did did they know that Lauren was in the hospital? Yes. Okay. That her family knew her dad, Paul, was actually her proxy while she was in the mental facility. Her family was concerned at first that Lauren had gotten back on drugs. I guess when she was a teenager, she got into a really terrible car accident. And because of the medications they prescribed her, it created an opioid addiction, which oh. led to the use of heroin. Ugh, jeez. But when the addiction caused her to lose custody of her daughter, Michaela, she had been determined to stay clean and fight for her daughter. Up until this point, June 1st, 2020, she had been two years clean. Good for her. And in her tox screening at the mental hospital, like I mentioned, there were no hard drugs found in her system. Okay. Her father, Paul, like I said, was her proxy while she was in the mental hospital. Now, Paul lived in California, not in Florida, oh. where she is. But this did not hinder their relationship at all. Paul and Lauren were very close. Paul raised Lauren. Lauren was raised in New York with her dad. At a young age, her mom lost custody and moved to Florida. In her 20s, Lauren's sisters convinced her to move to Florida to be closer to them. In doing this, she could also get to know her mom again, who she hadn't talked to in years. I think her dad even said like it had been 11 years since they had talked. So they were estranged. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think she even had like at least two brothers that lived in Florida as well as her sisters and her mom. But even with her move to Florida, she and her dad remained very close. And this psychosis episode really concerned him. But let me remind you of the date. She was admitted June 1st, 2020. And the rise of COVID-19... Mm -hmm. And Paul lived in California, which we know was very oh. strict with getting in and out of. So getting to Florida at this time was near impossible. So he could probably at the time fly out of California, but going to Florida, he couldn't get back into California. It was a mess at that time for travel. Yeah. yeah. And Paul had been trying to get out to see Lauren now since the end of May. Actually, May 22nd, to be exact. See, the hospital claimed that Lauren's temporary psychosis came from a chemical imbalance that happened after she had had an abortion on May 22nd. Oh. The decision had been a hard one for Lauren, but at that time in her life, she was working two jobs. And like I said, she was really working hard to get the custody of her daughter, Michaela, back. Adding another child to this, she just wasn't ready for that. She discussed it with her boyfriend, Gabby. Uh, his name is Gabrielle Pena, but he goes by Gabby, who apparently supported her. Now, we'll get into more depth of their relationship a little later. At best, I can. Uh, let's just say to social media and to friends, Gabby was the love of Lauren's life. But behind closed doors, like May 22nd, apparently Gabby beat Lauren. She sent oh. photos of the abuse to her father. Angrier than all get out, this is when Paul started to try to make moves or attempt to make moves to get to his daughter's side. Mm -hmm. 
So obviously these are some of Lauren's demons. A presumably abusive boyfriend, a past drug addiction, a chemical imbalance from an abortion. But these demons and these issues does not a person make. Let me tell you a little more about Lauren. She was beautiful, inside and out. She was described as generous to a fault. She would give someone the shirt off her back if they needed it. She believed in auras and energies. She would meditate daily. She lived a six-minute walk from Four Freedoms Park, and she would walk the six minutes to the beach every morning to meditate. She would lose herself in the peace and calm of the water and the outdoors. She had a smile that lit a room. All of her photos. I mean, she's just gorgeous. And you can see these photos from all of her daily positive social media posts. She loved her daughter, Michaela, with her whole being. And my favorite characteristic of Lauren was that she was a very determined fighter. She, like us all, had stumbled and had fallen down a few times, but she was a tough chick who did her best at correcting her footing and worked hard at correcting her path. I really, really admire that about her. When Lauren was discharged from the mental hospital on June 8th, her sisters, Lindsay and Cassie, as well as her father, Paul, called and checked up on her. She sounded like Lauren, they all said. She was positive. And sure, she was scared. She was scared that in that moment of her psychosis, she was hearing voices. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine? No. And it's something that she could not explain. Hmm. But she had a very positive outlook on it all and was moving forward with stride. Her sister Cassie, who lived about two hours away, made the trip out to see her sister and check in on her face to face on June 13th. So just five days after she was released. They went to the beach. It was a positive experience. Gabby even joined them. And the couple seemed very loved up, kissing, hugging, dancing on the beach. Cassie spoke to them about the abortion. They were at peace with their decision. They both wanted to get Michaela back. And to Cassie, the trip seemed very positive. Mm -hmm. But then the very next day, June 14th, Lauren started to show signs that she was regressing. Oh, no. She called her sister Lindsay at 6 a.m., but really had nothing to say. And then on Monday, June 15th, Gabby called Paul, Lauren's dad concerned with the state Lauren was in. According to the Complicit podcast, she was talking about the devil, aliens, and could hear voices again. Paul talked to his daughter. She said that something felt off. She didn't know what was going on. It felt like someone had given her something. She insisted she was going to be okay. She just felt off. Paul told Gabby that if things got worse, and she didn't snap out of it, that he needed to call the police and have her Baker acted again, Mm -hmm. which unfortunately did happen. She was taken in and placed on a 72-hour hold. Now, let me reiterate something here for you, or shed a light on something for you. Gabby called Paul, Paul, who lived in California, not Lauren's mom or somebody nearby, but he called Paul, who, oh, by the way, he had never spoken to before. Oh. Lauren and Gabby had been together for the last four years, but Paul nor some of Lauren's friends had ever met him before. And why the heck did he call Paul? Maybe because he had been Lauren's proxy at the mental hospital the first time, 
or because he knew how close she was with him. Right. Yeah. That's I don't what I know. Thought. It just seems really odd to me that he didn't call locals. What kind of makes this weird too? Long story short, Lauren moved to Florida in her 20s. She did so at the urge of her sisters, remember? Right. And mm-hmm. she started to form a relationship with her mom. Laura. And I know that's going to get confusing. So let's use the same name that the complicit podcast used to call the mom. They called her Anne. So that's just going to make it a little okay, less confusing. So Lauren moves to Cape Coral. They reconnect. And actually, Lauren eventually moves in with Anne and her long term boyfriend, Victor. And they had somebody else living with them at the time, Gabby. So Gabby was living with Anne and Victor. That makes it even more odd that he called the father because he was actually living there. He had been. Eventually, the pair started a relationship and they moved to a small one bedroom apartment just up the road from them. Okay. Gabby knew Anne and Victor. Not only lived with them, but he worked with Victor. The two tore out and replaced flooring in the Florida area. They drove to and from work together every single day. And they live like five minutes apart. That's weird then. Again, there's a lot of questions as to why Gabby called Paul and not his friend, Victor, who's Lauren's, you know, stepfather figure, or even Lauren's mom. It's rather odd. But according to the Complicit podcast, Lauren's sign of psychosis had started weeks before she was admitted the first time and her odd behavior started to prove to be too much for them and I think Gabby got the impression that they didn't want to get involved anymore and so they called Paul oh like things like her brother saw her meditating in her front yard while maintenance was trying to mow the lawn and she just like didn't move okay and this is weeks before she would first she was first admitted. And then there's other times like she like ran up to her brother's car, like pounding on his window about somebody trying to get her like things had started. But at the end of the day, this is your family. This is somebody obviously that needs your help. I mean, that's my opinion. Yeah. But OK, so so far, mom, do you have any questions? No, I'm just thinking how awful for her. Just awful. So I'm going to give you a quick timeline with the facts. May 22nd, Lauren gets an abortion as well as sends her father some photos of physical abuse that she had received from Gabby. June 1st, she's arrested at Four Freedoms Park for paranoid behavior and she is Baker acted. She's released on June 8th. Her sister comes and sees her on June 13th. She is recommitted on June 15th. She's released on June 18th after the 72 hour hold june 18th basically as soon as she's released lauren is seen on surveillance footage at a local convenience store to get a job application see what i mean about determination like she just she kept going and remember this is the spike of covid19 era (laughs) so in all seriousness, she was concerned she was going to lose her job at Taco Bell because of all the time she had missed while she was in the hospital. And right. jobs aren't easy to come by at this time. But she was determined. And that characteristic I mentioned before is just really important to me. She got out of the hospital and did her best to correct her footing. She also called her sister Cassie on June 18th 
and expressed her fear of losing her job. And they discussed how she'd gone and gotten a few applications and they set up a phone date for the following day to chat things over to potentially Cassie was going to help her sign up for government assistance. Okay. June 19th, that following day, that Friday, according to some, is the last day Lauren DeMolo has ever been seen. I need a drink. Ugh, this story just broke my heart. According to Gabby, on Friday morning, June 19th, he got up, got ready for work, kissed Lauren goodbye, who was still sleeping in bed, and left for work around 6.30 a.m. It is assumed that Lauren got up around her normal time and took her routine walk to Four Freedoms Park for her meditation because an anonymous man claimed to have seen her around 8.30 walking back in the direction to her apartment from the park. Okay. That night around 10 p.m., a little while after Gabby got home from work, he called Paul in California saying that Lauren could not be reached and that she was not home. Now, from the Complicit podcast... Gabby was not terribly concerned. I guess she had done this in the past, come and gone for a few days at a time, and like, no big deal. Wow. Some claim that she had been clean for two years. Now, Gabby and her had been together for four years. So I I don't know if this was a pattern, if, but he really didn't seem terribly concerned. But he was concerned enough to call Paul and tell Paul that she wasn't home. I don't know. There's a lot of... And like, wouldn't that be a big deal? She was just released from the mental... That's what I was thinking. For a second time. And maybe that's why he did call Paul and didn't just look at this as just a regular pattern. And she had a cell phone, but she didn't have a cell phone plan. She just used Wi-Fi. And, you know, nowadays you can get Wi-Fi anywhere. So she would use an app to text people or, you know, Facebook call or FaceTime through Facebook and stuff like that. That's how she used her phone. He claimed to have tried to get a hold of her, but couldn't. Paul told Gabby to keep him posted on Saturday if she showed up. On Saturday, Paul and Gabby talk again, and Gabby still had no word from Lauren. He claimed he looked for her, claimed he called the police. Paul said, well, if she doesn't come home tonight, please call and let me know. Gabby said, well, I won't know if she comes home or not because I'm staying at a friend's house. (laughs) Okay. Oh, my gosh. This guy's a little too much. Another little fact. I just keep throwing facts at you, but I'm going to do the best I can because this case was a lot of that. (laughs) I mean, listening to the Complicit podcast, doing all the research, there was like, there was a lot of, oh, and by the way, oh, and by the way, and I think I, I can't speak for the family, but I I took away from the complicit podcast that the family felt that way too. There's a lot of discoveries just in this investigation that were just kind of randomly thrown at them. And so it's a lot. So I'm going to do my best to keep it in chronological order while giving you the facts. But if you get confused, just stop me. So it really seemed like she kept her relationship with Gabby, the details of their relationship really close to her chest. Her friends didn't seem to know him and her dad didn't know him. And there was a time like one of her girlfriends called her and she didn't answer and she texted and was like, I can't talk right now. And the friend was like, or are you with, you know, are you with your boyfriend? And she responded, he's my everything. Well, he's her whole world. Yeah. But in the context of that text conversation, I can't talk right now. 
are you with your boyfriend? He's my everything. Oh, that doesn't even make it's like defending him when he didn't even need to be defended. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I see how you're looking at it. Mm-hmm. She could have just said, yes, I'm with him. Can't talk right now. You know what I mean? Like, but she right. defended him in a in a conversation where the context didn't fit defending. OK, it's like she's on edge about sharing about their relationship. I, I don't know. That's, again, my opinion. But her friends didn't really know him. Her father didn't know him. Obviously, her mom, Anne and Victor did know him. But other than that, no one really knew him. The two were off and on for about four years, but she's missing and he goes and stays at a friend's house. A friend's house. Yeah. The next day, Sunday, June 21st, is Father's Day. And when Paul does not hear any word from Lauren on Father's Day, he knew something was absolutely wrong. He called Gabby and shared some pretty aggressive words, threatening him that he needed to have a case number for Lauren's case that day. And eventually that night, Paul received one. Because remember, Paul's in California. He can't file missing persons. Cassie, Lauren's sister, she lives about two hours away. And she calls her mom and asks them to go to the apartment and check it out. She's like, somebody just needs to go put eyes on this apartment. Good. Yeah. Because remember, police couldn't go in. I mean, they could do, I think they did a wellness check, but they can't go into the apartment. Because the apartment was only in Lauren's name. So, and nobody was there to let them in. So there was, they can look around, peek in the window, but that's as much as they could do. So Cassie, who lives two hours away, calls her mom and is like, can you go put eyes in this apartment? But she has to basically beg her mom and Victor to go check out the apartment, according to the Complicit podcast. They begrudgingly go and check the apartment. And Cassie asks, like, did you check everywhere? Did you see anything? Did you look thoroughly? Mm -hmm. Victor responds, yeah, I even looked in the refrigerator and under the sink. Ugh. This is just kind of the tip of the iceberg for me in reference to the friction within this family. So the missing persons case is filed on the 21st and nothing is done. Nothing's being done. The family's not hearing any word. So Cassie and her husband, Matt, drive to Cape Coral to meet with Cassie's and Lauren's sister, Lindsay to check on things themselves. It had been three days since Cassie had talked to her sister and now she was missing. I can't imagine the emotional roller coaster. So they get a hold of Anne and they ask for a key to the apartment. Anne gives them a key but expresses that it's not hers to give. Apparently it was Gabby's. So she needed it back as soon as they were done with it. So Lindsay, Cassie, and Matt go to the apartment. They call the police. They, they're waiting outside for the police. And then they just get too anxious and they go in the apartment. And the apartment is basically clean. Nothing to be concerned with. They look around, but there's really nothing of relevance. There's a dead cell phone next to the bed, but it won't turn on. Cassie grabs it and holds on to it just in case. So while they're there waiting for police, guess who shows up? Gabby. Gabby. And he's there to get his TV. Quote, I'm going to grab my TV since obviously she's not coming back. Unquote. (gasps) What? Since he may know, Cassie asks Gabby whose dead cell phone she had. He goes into the apartment, he gets his TV, and as he leaves, he also hands Cassie a working cell phone. Cassie recognizes this phone as Lauren's. It's charged, it's signed into all of her socials, and it's working. Now, did he have that phone on him? With him, right. Or did he know it was somewhere in the apartment? 
plugged in maybe and they just charged but, but they had walked around that apartment and looked remember they had been in there searched everywhere and they found the dead one sitting next to the bed so if it were plugged in you'd see something plugged into the wall that'd be very obvious police show up for the welfare check and cassie is questioning them like okay who's the detective on this case what's going on with my sister's case but mom there is no detective set up on this case why not apparently there was a clerical error made when making the case and the person that could fix the clerical error was on vacation. Oh, my gosh. Mom, it wouldn't be until June 24th, which oh. is 72 hours since the file was reported, 120 hours since Gabby reported seeing her last, and 144 hours since she talked to her family. And that first 48 hours is the most crucial in any case. There's only one person that can do this in the whole department? To fix the clerical error, I guess. Oh, my gosh. June 24th, a detective is assigned to the case, Detective Nick Jones, who, quote, never not found a missing person before. Oh, boy. He also bumped the case up to a missing and endangered person because she went missing without her worldly items on her, which we already talked about. And why didn't she have her phone on her? This is the 21st century, right? We always have our phones on us. And I mentioned before, but she posted daily on social media. Her last post was on June 18th. Another thing, there was an outgoing call on Facebook Messenger to Gabby on the 19th. Oh. And would later be tracked coming from their apartment. She used Wi-Fi, remember? Mm -hmm. But he says he never got that call. It's at this point that Paul DeMolo arrives in Cape Coral, Florida. His whole heart set on finding his daughter. Police start their investigation and Paul, Cassie, and Lindsay do too. They start their days just like Lauren would have. They start at the apartment. They look around the place for anything new because they kept that key that Anne had given them, by the way. Then they would take the six-minute walk to the Four Freedoms Park beach where Lauren would meditate. They looked around the beach. They would talk to anyone that they came across They went to her work at Taco Bell. She hadn't picked up her last paycheck. Again, they talked to bus drivers, bus riders, neighbors, anyone they came in contact with. Mm -hmm. They did this new routine every single day. Saturday, June 27th was no different. They met at the apartment. They walked to the park. They drove around the area that day. And as they came back towards the park, they noticed police. A sheriff's boat is in the water. A dive team. They hurry over. Was this for Lauren? It was. Now, I know we've talked about it before, but police don't share anything during their investigation, even with family. I can only imagine because it's the unknown that haunts the families the most, but they can potentially hurt the investigation. Mm -hmm. They don't want anything planted and they don't want people to act, you know, they want people to be natural, have natural reactions. I mean, that they're reading all of that. Mm-hmm. The family had no advance notice that they were going to be searching the beach that day or in the basin at all. When they asked Detective Jones why they're in the water and what they were searching for, he responded that back on Saturday, June 20th, Lauren's purse was discovered at the park under the gazebo. Oh. Next to the purse was her shoes. In the purse was her wallet, her ID, her keys, 
I guess a homeless man discovered the purse and found all those items in it. So he gave it to police. But again, those are all of her belongings and her purse and her shoes. Where'd that cell phone come from? Oh, that's right. She she didn't take it. I mean, that's odd, isn't it? Very. But nothing was discovered in this search. Paul, Cassie, Lindsay, and her husband, Matt, kept up with their normal routine. Apartment, park, search the area. On July 2nd, they did this. And after hours of searching the neighborhood, they decided to go back and rest at Four Freedoms Park. Cassie's walking the beach. I imagine heartbroken and her mind exhausted with the what ifs and the maybes when they're sticking out of the sand. At the park that they had been to daily, this was even their second trip that day. They discover a maroon lace-like top. Lindsay remembered the shopping trip she had with her sister Lauren when she bought it. It's a shirt Lauren wore in many of her social media posts. Here it was, in the sand, on the beach that they had been to daily. On the Complicit podcast, Paul's interviewed and he even states that a camera crew had set up their cameras in that exact spot for interviews just days before. Wow. This isn't some big beach. It's small. The shirt was clean. It wasn't wet. It wasn't dirty. Oh, it wasn't wet. It, it hadn't like drifted over there. Was it planted there? A few days later on July 7th, a public search is done. Friends, locals, family, except for Anne, Victor, and Gabby. Now, oh my gosh, her own mother. Ugh. Now, I suggest listening to the Complicit podcast for a more in-depth view of this case. They interview Victor. They interview the sisters. They interview Paul, friends, local searchers. From what I gathered, Victor, although there were some suspicious moments, like the day they found the shirt, he was actually walking the beach with his dogs. Who was? Victor was. Victor. Okay. He walked the beach with his dogs multiple times a day. But when Cassie and Lindsay see him this day, they come running over to him and they tell him what they'd found. And he just kind of casually lurked to see what was going on. But then he just goes home. And I guess that was his personality. You know, so from the podcast, you can take away more depth from these moments. Mm -hmm. Like that looks suspicious to us if I just state it like that. But people that know him... That's just kind of who he is. And he stated, like, I didn't bother to stay and I didn't want to ask too many questions because Cassie was there. Cassie's got it. Lindsay was there. Lindsay's got it. I didn't want to get in the way. I had my dogs with me. Like, right. We can see it as suspicious, but not if it's his personality. Yeah. And he he's kind of a lurker. He just kind of stays in the background. That's what he does. Just a quiet guy, I guess. So did he always walk his dog on the beach or was he walking his dogs on the beach to look for Lauren? He always walked his dogs on the beach every day. Okay. Multiple times a day. That's what he did. So let's talk about Anne, Lauren's mom. I guess she had a struggling alcoholism issue. Mm. She was very ill at the time that Lauren went missing. She was in a wheelchair by choice. Because she kept falling down. Oh. She had her own demons that she was dealing with as well. And then I'm sure with her daughter going missing, that probably didn't help with the alcoholism issues and the illnesses that she already had. So, again, we can't judge. Right. Until we're in that situation. Right. We don't know. But 
if I if Anne and Victor were not suspicious already with the disconnect they were having with this search, when cadaver dogs were brought in on July 20th, they directly took their handlers across the street from Four Freedoms Park straight over to Victor's and Gabby's work van that was parked in Victor and Anne's driveway. So the dogs took a scent, I mean, followed a scent to the van? Yes. They then proceeded to take their handlers up to the apartment door of Victor and Anne's apartment. And these are cadaver dogs. These are not, here's a shirt, go smell for it. They are looking for decomposed. Holy smokes. Then in the apartment, they alerted at a curtain that was hanging in front of the washer and dryer. The friction between the family members only grew. All of this is explained away, I guess, apparently because of their line of work or and they removed old flooring and they replaced it with new. Maybe mm-hmm. the old flooring in one house that they had removed has something on it that the dogs were alerting to. Police took evidence They took that curtain. They took evidence from Ann and Victor's apartment. They took it all to be tested and they found nothing. Nothing. Okay. Okay. So I know this is a lot and I know there are a lot of, oh, yes. And uh, but back then, (laughs) but I think that's how this case really went for the family and those friends and locals that were searching for Lauren. New discoveries of Lauren just kept popping up, like the fact that when Gabby and Lauren's relationship was in its off pattern they're on and off again Mm -hmm. when their time was off lauren was on with another man a very dangerous man his name is carl crow carl crow was a big time drug dealer in cape coral and lauren had expressed to a couple friends that she felt very safe when she was with him maybe the money or maybe because he was big and bad but she felt very safe when she was with him long story short When Lauren went missing, Carl was in prison at the time. Okay. Apparently, a young woman had overdosed and died while doing drugs with him. He and a few of his guys had taken the poor girl and ditched her on the side of the road wrapped in a sheet. Police are apparently still looking into not necessarily Carl, but some of his constituents. Maybe Lauren was there when this happened. Maybe she knew too much information about something. Maybe he was mad at her for that abortion because we come to find out that she wasn't a hundred percent sure if the baby was Gabby's or if it was Carl's okay mom there are so many people where you can go but this guy and that guy did this and there's so many but like I said guys this case is still open like those constituents I mentioned before one was Jose Rivera and another was Joshua Okapal They knew and were acquaintances with one another, with Lauren, apparently. And this is newer information, but Lauren had sent a Wi-Fi message on an app of some kind to Joshua, I believe, saying, you guys coming on the night of the 18th. Oh. Joshua lived nearby, even told police later on that he saw Lauren walking the neighborhood around 10 a.m. on the morning of the 19th. They waved at one another. But remember, there was an outgoing Facebook call to Gabby at 10 a.m. from the apartment. So either he was wrong with his time or somebody who's to say she had her phone in her apartment at 10 a.m. Right. And Gabby was at work on the 19th. He has an alibi. It stands. 
He was at work over an hour away with Victor on a flooring job. Oh, okay. The police have their own investigation going. I believe I've shared everything that they have shared. I think they know more. I hope they know more and something is discovered. I think there are too many people tied in this to not have somebody come forward at some point. I pray to God it's sometime soon. The family has their suspicions as well with their own search that they've been doing. Like there was a guy named Sandy who used to come in and basically harass Lauren at her job at Taco Bell like every single day. But after she went missing, before she was reported missing, he stopped coming in. Yeah. He was looked into, but I think that ended on Detective Jones's end. Like I said, the Complicit podcast goes deeper into some of these theories, but one that stuck out to me and was talked about briefly was sex trafficking. Sex trafficking is really high in Florida, especially, I think, because it's right there on the coast. Right, and yeah. yes, I understand she had her temporary psychosis from the chemical imbalance after the abortion. But that comment she made to her dad that she didn't feel right, like someone had given her something, either she had been doing drugs and that was kind of an excuse, like somebody gave me something, or or what if somebody really did give her something? Mm-hmm. And I know they did the talk screen at the mental hospital, but certain drugs can only stay in your system for so long. Maybe it had been given to her a couple of days before. You know what I mean? Like, there's so many, there's so many what ifs in this case. Yeah. Yeah. Gabby went public and did, I think, only two public interviews. The first he stated he thought that she went out with friends and they got her messed up on drugs and then something happened. But months later, his public theory was that she was looking for a new apartment. So maybe she went and looked at one and someone took advantage of her being alone. Ugh. And that theory is interesting because she had mentioned to a maintenance worker one that worked at her mom and Victor's place, that she was looking for a new place because she wanted to, quote, get out of a bad situation, unquote. Now, was this bad situation Gabby? Or Victor states that Gabby and Lauren were wanting to get out of that place because they hated their neighbor. Oh, oh, my gosh. You keep throwing little wrenches in it. I know. I'm so sorry. (laughs) The shirt being found on the beach so long after she had gone missing, it seems almost staged to me. Mm -hmm. Yes, she hung out with some bad guys. All three, Carl, Joshua, and Jose, are all in prison right now. Not in reference to Lauren, but drug charges and such. Paul and his family hold events, vigils, dedications, and they even had a motorcycle ride, all dedicated to keeping Lauren's spirit alive, her story alive. And I hope we can reach more people to keep her story alive. Lauren will turn 32 this year. She's around 5'1", 110 pounds, blonde hair with brown roots and brown eyes. She has a few tattoos. Along her side is a large tattoo that reads Namaste. The letters NY are on her pelvic bone an ohm symbol on the inside of her wrist, and rosary beads on her ankle. She was last seen around her residence in the 4900 block of Coronado Parkway in Cape Coral, Florida. I will post the numbers on our website in the description of this episode and on our social media, but if you know anything about the disappearance of Lauren, please contact the Cape Coral Police Department at 239-574-3223 or Crime Stoppers at 1-800-780-TIPS, referencing case number 20 
The community still holds monthly community searches. You can follow along or join them if you're in the area for a search. The information for those are on their Facebook group, Lauren Molo, Lost and Missing. Oh, what a horrible story. Her poor family. I know I kept throwing wrenches into it, but I feel like that's what this case from the beginning of not having it in the system properly God, has there's just been. like one thing after the other. I know. I, I can't even imagine the hoops and the roller coasters of emotion. And I don't know. I feel really silly saying this, but I know our, the name of our podcast, Killer Hangover. I mean, it's cheesy and it's silly and, you know, we drink and we talk about paranormal, but, and in starting this, I thought we would just do, you know, true crime cases, but these cases where I I hope to God we reach somebody or just spreading these stories that need answers that are so crooked and sideways and everything else, like, I don't know, that's just given me so much meaning with this podcast and right. I know, you know, maybe I'm not going to ever solve a case by any means, but I don't know. My heart just hurts. Well, you never know. We have thousands of listeners. You never know who who might know something, right? I know. That's why I had to cover this. Led you down a few side roads on the way. Again, listen to the Complicit podcast if you guys want more information. It's an ongoing case, and I will be watching it very, very closely. Okay. Well, keep us updated. I will. Okay. Whew. Mom. Is your cocktail gone? Sorry, that was a little long. <laughs> I have one sip left. Sorry. Okay. Are you ready for some fun? Oh, I am so needing it, Mom. This is such... Have you ever heard of the Riddle House? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Riddle me that. Are okay. there riddles to get inside? Is this? Are you going to have riddles for us? I love riddles. No. I, I love too. a good riddle. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The yesteryear village. That's yester. Oh, my year. gosh. Is the riddle house in yesteryear village? Yes. Uh, the yesteryear village is in Palm Beach County, Florida. It sits on 10 acres of land, and it actually sits like on their fairground, part of their fairground. Okay. The village is a living history part made up of homes, old buildings, and Florida artifacts dating from 1895 to 1940. That's really cool. Living history means that often you'll have volunteers that dress up in period clothes and walk around and, you know, assist the visitors, you know, that kind of stuff. I love that. With all the history, it's not surprising that many, if not all, of the buildings are haunted in yesteryear village. What a cool name. <laughs> but none more, none more so than Riddle House. Built in 1905, the house originally sat at 327 Arcadia Road across from Woodland Cemetery. The house served as a funeral parlor, and I'm guessing that was because of its close proximity to the cemetery. It was common practice at the time to bury loved ones with jewelry Nice, but unfortunately, this practice also invited grave robbers. I was going to say, yeah, that's like an invitation for sure. They moved cemetery caretakers into the house. They lived there and were expected to watch for grave robbers as well as take care of the cemetery. What a terrible job. <laughs> Since the cemetery caretakers lived at the house, the house became known as Gatekeeper's Cottage. 
Okay, rightfully so. The city bought the house in 1914, and it became known as the City House. (laughs) I'm dying to know why it's called the Riddle House, but go on. (laughs) Then in 1920, Carl Ritter, the first city manager of West Palm Beach, moved in and the house became the Riddle House and has retained the name ever since. But his last name was Ritter? Riddle. Oh, Ritter. (laughs) Riddle. That's what you said. You said Carl Ritter. So I'm still waiting to to figure out. That's actually what I have written here. I don't know why. Okay, wait. Wow, is this a riddle to get to why it's called Riddle? Because that makes no sense. You said his last name was Ritter. You were very adamant his name was Ritter. You said it twice. I'm going to start. Let's start over. Then in 1920, Carl Riddle, I almost did it again, (laughs) the first city manager of West Palm Beach moved in and the house became the Riddle House and has retained that name ever since. Makes so much more sense. Okay. That was a tricky riddle. (laughs) Carl Riddle moved out (laughs) of the house in 1923. And it became a place for city employees to live until they got situated. In the early 1980s, the house was bought by Palm Beach Atlantic University when it became a dorm. Wow, this house has done a lot. Yes. When the university started to expand, they decided to demolish the old rickety termite infested structure. Ooh, ooh. This is where yesteryear village comes into the story as well as john riddle who is carl's nephew and who also was the assistant manager of yesteryear since it opened its gates in 1991 now i'll tell you why following this but this guy must have had unbelievable persuasive powers (laughs) why (laughs) okay so the first thing he did was so he thought Instead of demolishing the Riddle House, it would be a perfect fit in Yesteryear Village. Mm -hmm. So he actually got the university to donate the house. Some sources said directly to Yesteryear. Other sources said donated to him, to John. And then John would donate the house to Riddle Year, to to Yesteryear. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Okay. It was probably cheaper to donate the house than to tear it down, quite honestly. Probably. So the Riddle House has been rescued, but it would cost professionals $50,000 to move the house. I was just going to ask. So they donated the house, but like it's still going to cost them a ton of money to move the house. It's still sitting there. Okay. Which, oh, by the way, I only learned you could do that back in our (laughs) Amityville episode, if you remember. (laughs) It blew your mind then. This is going to blow your my mind. mind. <laughs> this is going to blow your mind even more. Okay. Uh, okay. So Riddle, determined to move the house, enlisted the help of 60, 60 volunteers to dissect the three-story house into three sections. Okay. But also crane and towing companies donated their labor and equipment. Oh my gosh. This guy must either know the right people or have these amazing persuasive powers well and you explain you described it as rickety and termite infested so i exactly i'm kind of blown away that 60 people were all on board to be like oh let's move this thing (laughs) 
Between August 12th and 13th, 1995, the Riddle House was moved. The roof and attic were split in two, as were the first and second floors. Then the house was reassembled in Yesteryear Village. The venture ended up costing $800. (laughs) Wow, good for him. There's your riddle. (laughs) How do you coerce 60 volunteers and companies to move an old home for $800? I don't know, but he did it. But no, the $800 was for dumpsters because he couldn't find a place that has dumpsters that would donate the dumpsters. So the $800 was for dumpsters. Everything else was taken care of. Darn you dumpster companies. Oh, then they used a state historical grant and the house was returned to its 1920s look. As you can imagine, the Riddle House is full of paranormal activity. Strange things were reported by the men who helped move the house. They reported finding their tools at the bottom of the steps when they returned in the morning to start work. They would find third floor windows shattered. And at one point, the house actually... The house reconstruction actually was put on hold for six months because workers were so shaken up with events that went on in the house. Oh, my gosh. So who are these restless spirits? Well, there's Buck, a man who worked for the cemetery. The story goes that he was killed in town during an argument, and his ghost has been seen walking around the house and on the porch of the cottage where the cemetery workers would usually eat their meals. Okay. There also seems to be a prominent mean spirit. It's said to be Joseph, who was a handyman hired by Carl Ritter. I did it again. (laughs) I have Ritter here. Why did I do that? Okay. It's a riddle. Who was a handyman hired by Carl Riddle. Joseph was facing all kinds of hurdles in his life. His personal life had fallen into ruin and he was drowning in financial debt. Not seeing a way out, he hung himself in the attic of the house. And supposedly, it was shortly after his death that strange things began to happen. So the people who moved the house weren't the first ones to report things happening. The hired help, after Joseph killed himself, the hired help reported hearing chains being dragged on the floor apparitions in the shadows and voices where no one was present it was said that carl and his family had a hard time even keeping the hired help jeez that's spooky today the riddle house is looked at as one of the most haunted places in florida of course past and present volunteers who worked and work at the village have also reported odd things They have had their hair pulled, have been pushed, have seen figures walking in front of windows, and have seen lights flickering in the house after it's been locked up. Oh, that is just spooky. That's so spooky. Because I'm sure this, what's it called? Yonder, yonder, what's it called? Yesteryear? Yesteryear. Yonder year. Same thing. (laughs) Anyway, I'm sure there's homes from different eras and different like buildings and such. So it's this own little town essentially Mm -hmm. and then you close up and you're walking through the streets of it and then you see people moving inside you see shadows of the house i know people inside these houses oh that's just really spooky creepy i don't know how many like homes are there there's like a bank there and there's a fire station you know an old-time fire station that kind of stuff so it, it actually does make a village so these volunteers have reported chairs being moved 
Um, there was one, and I'm going to get to this, but there was a volunteer vacuuming and she had just vacuumed one area. She turned around, vacuumed the other. She turned around and the chair that had been there was moved, turned around. Oh, and that ha- happened when she turned her back as she was vacuuming. I was, I thought you were going to say that she vacuumed a spot. She turned and vacuumed another spot, but she turned around. There was dirt on the spot. She just vacuumed that. <laughs> that would have been, would have that would have been worse infuriating. than the chair. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> They've reported being touched. One or more of the spirits seem to really like hair because many of the volunteers have felt their head being stroked. Ooh. <laughs> now that would be creepy. Ooh. I do not like okay. that. The following is my favorite story. There was a private reception held for the unveiling of the Riddle House. Among the people that milled around yesteryear village uh, was a young couple dressed in 20th century garb. It was thought that the two were actors hired to add a flair to the reception. Many people reacted to the couple, greeted them, and were greeted back. But when the old photo of the original Riddle House was unveiled... The attendees were shocked to see the couple in the photo. No. But they were nowhere around yesteryear village. That sounds like it was made up. (laughs) Maybe it was, but it's a damn good story. It is. That's a very good story. (laughs) That's spooky. I actually discovered the Riddle House through Ghost Adventures. Oh, (laughs) no. The guys visited the location in Series 1, Episode 4, so real early on. I know we sometimes make fun of ghost adventures, but this episode was really good. Zach used a psychic medium for the first time, so he's used them since, but this was the first time he ever used a psychic medium. Her name is Sheila Powell. Supposedly, she had no knowledge of Riddle House. Didn't know the history or even how it got to yesteryear village. If this is true, (laughs) then (laughs) it was remarkable watching her reactions and readings in the house. If it isn't true, then I was just a sucker because I was like, (laughs) wow. So when they were in the, quote, nursery, she heard voices, but it wasn't children. It was four men arguing. Then she felt drawn to the attic, but at the same time repelled by the attic. There was a lot of anger radiating from that location. And she was like, I don't want to go up there. I know we have to, but I don't want to go up there. As Sheila and the Ghost Adventures crew stood in the attic, Sheila kept rubbing her neck. And Mm -hmm. and she just did it almost subconsciously. She wasn't talking. I mean, she was doing just rubbing her neck. And she said, quote, this guy is going to give you trouble. He doesn't like men. He doesn't like you the most. She said, pointing to Aaron, who at that time was a cameraman. She picked up that there was a traumatic death in the attic and she's still rubbing her neck. But she's like choking a little bit and she's having like her throat's getting dry. The whole time she's rubbing her neck and she doesn't. That's really weird. Yeah. During the lockdown, the crew picked up many cold spots. The house was like 80 degrees pretty much all around, but the cold spots read 60. 
during hmm. filming. I'm sorry, but 60 degrees a cold spot, man. It's like 30 degrees outside today. That's cold. <laughs> no, that would. But be I guess spot. comparably to 80 degrees, I their get meter it. their meter would go down to 60. So who knows? I don't know. Womp okay, womp so, womp. So there was a block. It was about six by two that Zach had placed at the top of the stairs, daring a spirit to throw it down. Throw it at me. <laughs> Hit me. Hit me with it. He was braver back then, that's for sure. <laughs> no, he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing happened at that time, but later, the block, which was sitting upright, actually fell down. Oh. Yeah. That and it's was a block. Was it on like a solid surface? That's crazy. Yeah, it was on the top of the steps, and it was solid. Oh. And they jumped, you know, around that area. I mean, everybody was downstairs. They weren't anywhere near the block. But Weird. even jumping around it wouldn't cause it to fall down they tested that so that was a weird. little weird mm -hmm. then we have poor Aaron he got sent <laughs> to the attic because the spirit didn't like him most of all <laughs> oh well, that makes sense you could tell he felt very uncomfortable up there especially when he provoked the spirits and he didn't really want to <laughs> you could just tell he kept, going, he kept going oh man dude I don't really want to do this I don't want to do this Oh. oh, dude. Okay, so why'd you hang yourself? I mean, you just like, I, uh, I don't want to do this. <laughs> Meanwhile, Zach and Nick are on the first floor. They had been told that for some reason the spirits don't like, didn't like flags. Just any kind of That's flag. so random. <laughs> very random. Even while you're watching it is very random. As they were talking about this little bit of information, they heard a loud noise. After exploring, they found a flagpole with a flag wrapped around it lying on the floor. They tried to debunk the tried to debunk this, um, but there seemed to be no way the pole would have fallen naturally from its position propped against the wall. Ooh, a flag. That's just so random to me. <laughs> Why the spirits don't like flags? I, I don't know. Just a short time later, Zach and Nick heard a loud crash coming from the attic. They ran up there. Remember, poor Aaron's up there by himself. They ran up there and were met by a very freaked out Aaron, who said, I'm out of here, dude. <laughs> then, he, he kind of, then he kind of mumbles as he's walking away. That's what I get for asking stupid questions like you do. <laughs> oh, and he was just a cameraman at that point? That's yeah, so he was funny. just a cameraman. So it turned out that, so after replaying the camera, you know, that was taping, it turned out that there was a birdcage in the far corner behind Aaron, and the birdcage just randomly toppled off of the desk he, it was standing on. And you can see it. You can see it in the film. Why did they get more evidence back then than they do now? I don't know. I don't know. That was weird, seeing that. Yeah. That would be just weird seeing all that. All of a sudden, you're just watching this going, okay, is anything really going to happen? You see this birdcage just topple off the desk. <laughs> weird. Oh, no. All right. So, you know, I have to end with Zach moments and quotes, right? Of course. <laughs> there was a time in the episode where it was just Nick and Zach. So I think this is when Aaron was up in the attic. Anyway, they hear another very loud crash from the kitchen and Zach literally loses it i mean it's like it's like exactly what i'm gonna do when we go on our first investigation and something <laughs> happens okay i'm gonna lose my you know anyway 
he was screaming. He, he was scared to death. He was scared to death. Nick just went into the kitchen, just like, I've got a mission. I'm going to do this. He just went into yeah. the kitchen to see if anything had fallen. And Zach wouldn't even go into the kitchen. He's like, oh, my God. Ah! Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. <laughs> Nick actually turned around several times and he goes, settle down. Just settle <laughs> down. So I take back what I said about him being braver back then. <laughs> That's basically said, how no. he is now after 25 seasons. Oh, <laughs> he was so scared. Even when he talked, his voice was quivering. I mean, he oh my was scared gosh. to death. They didn't find anything, but obviously the noise did come from the kitchen and it was very loud. Okay, now here are some Zach quotes that I got. One, I don't go by feelings, but... Uh, I don't feel right. What? <laughs> since when has Zach, if you watch Ghost not Adventures, gone by feelings. since when has Zach not gone, oh. gone by feelings? I mean, it's predominantly led by feelings. We recorded us watching Ghost Adventures for our patrons. <laughs> and that episode that we covered was the first of this new season that came out. It's all about feelings with Zach. Even it now, is. it's all about feelings with Zach, which makes us mad because we want the evidence. We want the blocks falling and the bird cages falling. And like, okay, you feel spooked out while you're also in a really old house in the dark. Like, <laughs> you're going right. to feel spooked. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody, I think, would. Another thing he said, you know, he was yelling at the the spirit. The block was up there and he was like, I have respect for entities, but I have disrespect for evil entities that hurt people. <laughs> so it's like telling the spirit <laughs> that he didn't respect him. <laughs> I disrespect you. I have disrespect for evil entities. <laughs> and then he, oh, he yeah, ended yeah. the episode with, quote, it's a riddle at the riddle house. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, that's been my go-to joke for this episode, so why not, Zach? Why not? So, okay, I'm doing this research, and I'm writing this, and I'm thinking, man, if I was a ghost, and I was in the cemetery, and I would have ghost friends at the house that I would go visit, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the ghost, I mean, the house is gone, and I didn't have my ghost friends right there anymore, I would be mad, too. I would be a mad ghost. I think you are totally overthinking this. <laughs> Just saying, they moved the house. And after they moved it, they've really got a lot of paranormal activity. So, yeah. Well, they say that whenever you renovate old places, though, that stirs up spirits, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to end with a quote from one of the videos that I watched. Quote, yesteryear village built for the living accommodating the dead. That's a cooler quote. That's super cool. <laughs> That's the one I'm going to end with. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, we had way too much fun recording ourselves watching Ghost Adventures. Oh my gosh, that was, but it was normal. I mean, it wasn't like we were, right. that's how we watch Ghost Adventures. Oh, you get so frustrated sometimes. <laughs> oh, this place sounds really cool. I'd like to see all of What's Yesteryear. it called? Yeah, thank you. Jeez. <laughs> Yesteryear Village. I know it sounds fun. The yonder years that's haunted by Mr. Ritter <laughs> in the Riddle House. <sighs> oh. All right, Mom. Well, this was a, yeah, 
was a pretty good episode. (laughs) Well, you never know. Maybe down the road, somebody will listen that knows something about Lauren that can help out. And meanwhile, we'll just keep plugging on. Yes, we shall. Like I said, those phone numbers will be listed in the description of this episode, as well as on our website and our social media. Our website is KillerHangoverPodcast.com. You can email us at KillerHangoverPodcast at gmail.com. And all of our sources will be listed on our website. And photos and all that jazz will also be posted on our social media. Was that feathered that just flew over your head? I hope not. (laughs) That was really, it looked like a feather just floated right here. No. Ooh, mom. (laughs) I saw something. Uh That was weird. (laughs) She's scared, guys. She's scared. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. Remember, we're on YouTube. Yay. Oh, yes, we're, we're on YouTube. We're on YouTube. And patrons, we have some more ghost adventures videos coming your way. Oh, by the way, mom, since we rate all of our ghost adventures episodes that we're watching from here on out with dudes, how many dudisms did you give this episode? I watched? love it. <laughs> <laughs> the one we watched of the newest season, we gave, I don't know, I think it was like four out of 10. That was my rating. Yeah. Yeah, because nothing really happened. But what about this one that you watched? This one that I watched was, I I would give it a seven to an eight out of ten. Seven dudes? Wow, seven and a half dudes. Seven dudes. dudes. pretty good. Mm -hmm. That's impressive. Seven hey dudes. You can join us on Patreon and watch. We have way too much fun. It's it's a lot of fun. Join us. The link is in the description of this episode, but you can also find a link on our website. Thank you so much to our patrons and thank you for listening. For listening. Yes. Thank you. All right, kiddo. Cheers, mama. Cheers. Love you, kid.